All we need is a place to be And a few good friends for some company If you'd like to stay, you don't have to leave We'll leave the lights on and the door unlocked If you drop on by, you don't have to knock We're happy to share whatever we've got Hi, I'm Clay, and this is Yarn About You A podcast where I get to chat with people I know and love As well as people I'd just like to meet and hear their story Yarn About You would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which this podcast was recorded. We pay our respects to the Elders, past, present and emerging, for passing on their knowledge and stories, keeping the Indigenous culture alive for all the generations to come. Today's guest is Order of Australia recipient Liz Mulliner. Liz was an absolute powerhouse in the Australian entertainment industry before heading in a completely different direction, dedicating her entire life to helping abuse victims on their journey of healing. She's an accomplished author and speaker. She's the co-founder of Advocate for Survivors of Child Abuse and the founder of Heal for Life Foundation. I first met Liz in the mid-1980s when I began my journey as an actor, auditioning for TV shows and commercials at her casting agency in Sydney. She's a bright light and a genuinely beautiful person who I'm very proud to call my friend. I hope you enjoy our yarn. Liz Mullina, welcome to Yarn About You. Thank you. Thank you. Very happy to be here and see you again. It's so nice to see you. It's only been, what, 30 years? Oh, at least 30, yes. It is 30. Okay. I've spoken to you on the phone and uh, on Facebook, but yeah. but yeah, nothing like being face to face. I always start at the very beginning. So uh, you were born in England. Tell me about your parents. Uh, um, my parents, I'm laughing because, you know, um, I'm a survivor of child abuse and so my parents is a kind of um, interesting question. But anyway, mm-hmm. I was born into a vicar's family. Uh, I was the fifth of six children. Uh, my mother had been an opera singer and they were both very Christian, committed, socialist people. And a lot of my values in life I absolutely inherited from them, mm-hmm. like that, you know, look after other people and all the rest of it. That's very much I inherited from my parents. Oh, you've certainly done that. Um, and I'm always obsessed with... Um, I, I, it was such a, m- a massive part of our life to move an hour up the road. Um, it was a massive decision. How do people end up coming from another continent? How, how did you end up in Australia? Uh, I was married to Rod Mulliner, who's an actor, and uh, he got drunk with Bill Hunter, the actor, and he came back one night and said, we're going to Australia. And I went, oh, well, I'm actually in a play and I'm not sure I really want to go to Australia at all. Uh, but, you know, it, then it was two years and ten pounds and young people, you know, it's only 21, so I said, okay, let's have two years in Australia and then we'll go back to England. And, and Bill kept saying, oh, you'll work so much as actors over there, et cetera, et cetera. But we believed him and got on the plane. Wow. So how did you end up in the performing arts? Were you an actress from a young age? I, I, was, I wasn't a professional actress from a young age, but I always wanted to be an actress and went to drama school the second I could get out of school. Literally wow. the second. <laughs> okay. I, I never knew that. Oh, like, yes. Oh, yeah, I never absolutely. knew. Yes, yes. I was an actress and yeah, went to drama school and loved acting. And yeah, that's one of the pities of coming to Australia. I stopped very quickly. I stopped acting, whereas uh, if I'd stayed in England, I'd have stayed an actress. Wow, okay. So you ended up in Australia. At what age did you move to Australia? 21. 21. Okay. And um, and I know you ended up, I met you when you were uh, running the casting agency. How did that happen? How did Molinar's casting um, agency? Well, uh, 
having arrived here as an actress of my husband who was an actor and we acted <laughs> and then he wasn't get as mu- getting as enough work to keep us and so I'm very, a friend of ours Hilary Linstead said to me why and I'd been going into her agency uh, she was a casting director in an advertising agency and I'd been going in for jobs and um, she said why don't you I don't know why she thought she said why don't you take over my job I'm leaving to go with Gloria Payton into and being an actor's agent and I went Oh, well, good. Some income. Yes, that's a very, very, very good idea. So um, I became a casting director of an advertising agency, completely out of the blue, as it were, and um, in, enjoyed doing that enormously. And then, actually, Rod left me, and I thought, oh, what am I going to do now? Now I've got my, I can do anything I like in my life now. I don't have to be earning money to keep my husband. I can, I can do whatever I want to do. So I was going to go off and be a missionary, but I couldn't get a boat. And, I, and then um, one of the producers at Lintas said to me, why don't you set up independently? Because I said I was leaving. And they said, oh, we, ca- we can't manage without you. Why don't you become a freelance casting director? And I said, oh, that's, a, that's an interesting concept. And I, no one was doing it. No one had heard of it. And I thought, well, I'll give it a go. <laughs> nothing to lose so I um, worked an extra month at the agency and copied all the actors files we had on in the agency and um, rented an office and I had $200 and I thought well I've got a month's income you know I've got a month and if it doesn't work in a month well that's nothing lost nothing you know it was only $200 Um, I'll then think what I'm going to do and luckily it succeeded so certainly did it's that that was that was it so what year was that what year did you start the agency 69. Yeah. 69, yeah. Well, it was always, um, when I met you, uh, it was from my numerous auditions at your place, um, and I always remember walking past your office, you calling me in and sitting down and having a chat, and um, yeah, it was always such a welcome place to be, and I talk to people now about what a strange life it is, um, because I'd show up, and I was a, a young kid at the time, yeah. I'd show up with my backpack on, I'd walk yeah. in, introduce myself, say hello to everybody, and they'd say, right, um, this is for a commercial for something, yeah. you're going to be a tree that morphs into a lion, can you do that? Mm. And you'd do it. pretend to be a tree morphing into a lion, you'd shake everybody's hand, put your backpack on and go home. Mm. And um, yeah, there's nothing that's really like that. No. But, um, but yeah, it was, it was always a pleasure to, um, to, to come and see you, and you know that you've always been uh, important to me. Um, and your life uh, when you finished at the agency, which is still one of the most successful um, casting agencies in the world, um, your life took a different turn. Yeah, so then um, 25 years later, 25 years later anyway, when I was uh, 50, um, I had to rush to see my brother's daughter being being born immediately after she was born in hospital in the middle of the night. And that is what they call triggered me, and that triggered me into... Um, well, it triggered me originally into being extremely sick and nearly dying and out of that came um, the knowledge that I'd been sexually abused that that had rem- I did well it, I didn't actually till years later reading it in Women's Weekly realised the cause but um, it made me start realising that I'd been sexually abused and there was a whole different side to my childhood that I'd completely and absolutely buried so in the journey to uncovering that and to healing myself, I discovered there weren't any services for survivors of child abuse, that it was kind of totally misunderstood. And I thought, well, I'm obviously that's what I'm going to have to do. So it was a kind of, um, not a big, bit bigger than a light bulb moment, but it was a kind of realisation that there was something else I had to do in life other than cast films. Oh, it's just unbelievable, the, um, the, the success that you've had. And the, um, I mean, I'm, I'm here in the, the country where the... Um, 
uh, up on the in the Hunter Valley, where your foundation is based, and it's the most incredible country. It's the most peaceful area. I can see why you're here. Oh, it is lovely. Absolutely, yeah. and I've uh, I know that the the amazing work that that you and your counsellors do for mm. people, it's um it's immeasurable. The um, it's important. How wonderful you are! I can't oh. say it any other way. <laughs> it's true. Thank it's so you. true. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm so in awe of, um, <laughs> of of what you do to help people, and um and yeah, it's very inspirational. Um, so how how did this foundation start? How did it begin? So, um, I, as I say, I was looking around, looked around, but I kept listening to psychologists and psychiatrists, and then the media. They were talking about false memories, and I thought, oh, that's bullshit. What do you mean? No, no one, no one can pretend what happens when you actually recover a memory, when you actually know your own childhood. No, nobody, yeah, no actor could ever, ever do it. So I knew that they were talking nonsense. Um, and one day I was at a meeting of, I think, six psychologists on a panel or something, and I just suddenly got really angry, and I stood up and said, look, you don't actually understand survivors of child abuse. You don't actually understand anything about it, and I'm going to start an organisation so that people, we, who have been suffered from abuse, will actually start teaching you, the therapists, what we need. I said, if anyone would like to join me, please um, please join me. And I left, and about a social worker, um, people from a lawyer, different people, women, rang me up and said, I'll join you. And I felt very, very strongly that this was not a gender issue, and I felt it was not a feminist issue. And so I was thinking, oh, I just want... And then luckily, a wonderful, wonderful film director, Chris Thompson, rang me, and I'd already been helping him from because he'd shared with me his story. Um, and I'm not saying anything that he hasn't... He's quite happy for me to say. And anyway, I said, will you come and join us? So from the very beginning, what was then called ASCA, which is now the Blue Knot Foundation, was done on the basis that the issue we were talking about was not a gender issue. And at that moment, it very much was. All the sexual assault services were only for women in Sydney. It was very... And I was quite um, accosted. Um, you know, people in the health industries sort of said, you, you're talking nonsense. And I said, well... As many boys as girls are reported to docs every year, so excuse me, what's happened to those boys? Um, that's got to, there's a reason why they're not with their families, and that's trauma enough. So no, this is an, this is an, an, and still today we we run um, gender free, if you like, uh, programs. We don't have we sometimes have occasionally a special week for men or a special week for women, but basically it all goes on the basis it's not about gender, not even about sex. It's just about healing the the trauma. Mm. It, it, it's always confused me that the answer seems to be to medicate somebody to deal with trauma. I mean, that, it, basically, that just numbs it for a time, but it doesn't, doesn't deal, deal with, with it. the issue. No, exactly. And you don't you don't just take medication for cancer. You don't just take me, uh, um, medication for any other thing. If everything else, they work out how to heal you, and medication is a necessary. Um, at a moment in your healing journey with, with mental illness, they believe that medication is lifetime and they still have the stupid belief that the brain can't change, which is we've known for 30 years that it can, um, and therefore they medicate rather than healing. And it's a shocking waste of human resources and humanity because all these people should be being encouraged to heal, instead of which people who are depressed, oh, the multitude of different mental illnesses are kind of encouraged with medication to go, oh, you've got this lifetime illness and there's nothing that can be done, rather than saying, okay, so you've been diagnosed with bipolar, it's not a lifetime condition, you can heal if you want to. Oh, you've been diagnosed with schizophrenia, well, you can heal from it. So um, I think my mission is to try and get people to know that they can heal from mental illness. It's not a lifetime 
It's only your brain that's been affected instead of your lungs or your heart or um, your liver or your kidneys or whatever. It's just another organ, but it's an organ that affects your behaviour. And so when you're very, very sick, your behaviour gets worse and worse and worse and your logical thinking gets worse and worse and worse. But as you heal, the brain, just like all the other organs, heals itself. And then you don't have irrational thoughts and you don't have um, hear lots of voices and all, all of those things. So uh, to me, healing is something that people don't recognise that you can heal from all mental illnesses. The brain is an incredible thing. I heard you talk about it being elastic. Yeah. Can you explain? Well, um, basically what they realised from about 30 years ago was our brain is made out of like 80,000 billion neurons, like tiny little cells, and they connect up according to what we learn. So if as a baby you learn your mother doesn't love you, then your brain thinks, okay, well, I've got to survive in this world, so what am I going to do? So your neurons connect in a way to mean that you decide, okay, I'm not going to... I'm not going to trust anybody. So the neurons connected don't, don't trust anybody, keep away from people, because that way you'll survive. It's safe. It's safe, exactly. So you are, our brain doubles in size in the first year of life. So in that first year of life is laid the foundation for everything we believe about this world. But the amazing thing is that all the way through our life, we can go back and we can heal it. We, we can get those neurons to connect differently. We can, just like you can heal, you know, if you've got scarring on the lungs. Mm -hmm. Now, there can be some scarring on the lungs which has been so badly damaged that you can't actually totally correct it. The lung can't totally... And the brain's the same. If someone suffered most horrific trauma, uh, they only may get 50% to the capacity of other people, but they will get to 50% mm. because they're always a part of the... There's always... Everybody's brain is still here. Um, so everybody's brain can can change and everybody can be happier than they are and they will certainly be happier no that's not I won't say that I, in, that's my opinion um, I, I believe that everyone's what I was going to say is happier uh, healing rather than medication I won't say that it's just if people want a permanent solution rather than a temporary fix mm. um, but but it's a choice and thank God a lot of people more and more people are choosing people don't know that they can change well the brain's such an advanced thing i know i've dealt with people who um have had quite a lot of trauma and the things that the brain will block or or move out is um it just fascinates me how that works it shuts down it makes you forget things it makes you put things to the side when you but it's still there yeah oh well trauma when you release cortisol stress hormones the stress hormones at any of us as we get more and more anxious we release more and more Stress hormones, cortisol. Cortisol shuts off three critical parts of your brain. What does it shut off? Your hippocampus in the left side of your brain. That is your memory. You do not remember actual moments when it was more fear than your brain could cope with. Just like I didn't remember my childhood. You don't remember. That's the, that's the break, red light, take no more. It's, it's the same as how people say they don't remember the accident. Exactly. They, like the, it, the brain blocks it off. But it doesn't. The left brain blocks off. The right brain, the unconscious brain, stores it in a part of the brain called the amygdala. So it is not forgotten. <laughs> like it could always be accessed. And then the other part of the brain that gets cut off is the prefrontal cortex. And that makes you aware of your how you're behaving, makes you aware of what other people are thinking. It's your kind of logical awareness of your behaviour and how it's impacting on others. That is completely disconnected when you're highly stressed. So a highly stressed person... If they're being irrational, impossible, and just nightmarish, they won't even know about it later. How many people say, you know, the husband says to the wife, oh, you were just shouting and yelling, and the wife says, no, I wasn't. Mm. They genuinely, if they're highly stressed, do not know that they were. 
And the third part of the brain is the Broca's area, because that's in the left brain. All this is in the left side, trauma's in the right side. And the Broca's area is your ability, uh, obviously, to verbalise, you know, speechless terror, but it's also kind of being able to put the words together. So a lot of people, um, when they're stressed, can't put can't get the right words together. So, it, But it, the critical thing is understanding that your ability to think sensibly, your ability to remember your behaviour is all cut off when you're highly stressed. So a highly stressed person, you can never talk logically to a highly stressed person. You can never tell, say, someone who's really, really angry, calm down. Because the brain doesn't, part, part of their brain doesn't think they're being angry and the other half of their brain is, is, is that is absolutely counteracting what I know I need to do, which is to actually express the anger. So um, once you begin to understand how trauma impacts on the brain, then you realise the only way you heal from trauma is to go back into the right brain, into this amygdala, and release the fear. Because it's the fear, it's the fear that, uh, that means you that it's held in that part. And once you release the fear, then it goes into your conscious brain, you remember the event, you remember the car accident, and then um, it becomes a memory that was awful, but you don't get triggered by it, you don't get affected by it. So when Princess Diana um, you know, died in that car crash, they, they were near the Saint-Petre Hospital in, in Paris. Mm. They took the bodyguard there, and, and why I say the name of the hospital, it's where they first in the late 19th century discovered the fact that you don't remember trauma. Oh, really? And hypnotised them. For, to people to, to, when people hypnotised, they discovered they started saying things that they didn't consciously know. So they did that to that bodyguard to discover what had happened in the final moments of Princess Diana's life. So that's exactly that. You can always uncover that which was too frightening to remember. You never, ever, whether it happens when you're in the third trimester in the womb, when you're a tiny baby, a few days old, it is all there because your brain... It's like it has to remember never to let that situation happen again. So when I was rushed to the hospital and got triggered into being physically ill until I started dealing with my trauma, that's because when I was five, I was rushed to a hospital in the middle of the night um, where I stayed for a week and was sexually abused by a doctor. So what that did was my brain was... was, was my logical brain went and everything um, went into suspension, if you like, until... I started dealing with it, and that was just the beginning of me uncovering all the rest of the stuff. Well, I think I, I spoke to you early on about how the older I get, the more I get triggered by things, things that, that throw back, and, and that kind of safety and that um, fight-or-flight mode. Um, so when, I, if, when you want to get rid of being triggered, and they get worse and worse, because it's like your right brain saying, okay, you're old enough now, deal with it. Deal with it, and at the moment you're doing lots of creative work, so you'll be getting more triggered because you're allowing yourself to be in your right brain more. When you're in your left brain, you were kind of a nice distance away from all that stuff. But mm. now when you're painting and being creative, etc., it, it so if you want to get rid of the triggers, the only way you do it is by healing from what the original incident was. It's as simple as that. Yeah, it's funny because I always talk about it. I'm a talker. But um, I, I say to Amanda, Amanda will know that there's something wrong, mm. And I'll just say to her, I feel like I have to run. I've got to run. I've got Take to go. Flight. And I'm, I'm not a runner. <laughs> you know, I don't run. But, but it's that feeling of the flight. And, um, yeah, triggers are, are such horrible things. And if you've dealt with such trauma like you have, um, it just doesn't make sense to, okay, here's a tablet that'll fix it. And even more, I'm going to give you a simple trick And anyone listening to this podcast. This is the easiest thing. Whenever you get triggered, mm -hmm. if you're not going to work out what, you, what the original event is, and that's a choice, all you have to say is look at Amanda and say, I feel frightened, I feel scared, I feel terrified, 
but it's okay, it's from my past, it's not happening right now, is it? And she'll say, no, no, here you are at home, it's not happening. And then you go, okay, and you just, it's gone. Try it, it's, it's such a simple, simple thing to do. Acknowledging the feeling means your right brain can stop kind of ringing the alarm bells, saying, mm. remember, remember, remember. And your left brain, which is your thinking brain, as it were, has calmed your right brain and said, it's okay, it's not happening right now, you know, you're quite safe here, and then you feel normal. Anything anyone's frightened of, the secret is to own that they're frightened. If you're frightened of flying, say to the person next to you in, next to you in a plane, I feel frightened of flying. And you can actually feel it moving through. Mm. So how do you how do you deal with somebody? Because it's a pretty terrifying thing to bring that fear out and to acknowledge that there's well, a fear not. there. It's not. It's not? No, because to release it is it's you're holding on to this thing. It's a freedom. It's, it takes 30 seconds. Just acknowledging. You know, it's just just letting it go. I mean, it's it, it's it's <laughs> whatever the original event was has been lived through. The mm. original event has happened, so that's gone. So all you're doing is remembering something that's happened. So what? Even if it's something that you obviously haven't remembered that happened, it doesn't matter. It's got. It's not longer. It's what happened to you as a child. What you're doing is freeing your whole soul, spirit, brain from that fear by releasing it. But it's not releasing the fear is nothing like. Um, the amygdala doesn't have a sense of time. So something that may have taken 30 minutes, you release in five seconds. Mm. It's not, um, that's, people don't go into their healing because they're frightened of the fear. So what does it take to get somebody to get to that stage? Personal choice. Because it is a, it, it's a hard thing um, mm. if, if, somebody's, if somebody takes it to the point where they're in addiction or they're if in mm. um, alcoholism or anything like that, it's... It's so hard. I've seen so many people in the past go down the road and, and you can't help them. Only they can help themselves. Yeah. I remember Barry Humphreys once said something to me which absolutely sat with me. I can even remember where he said it to me because it was so profound. It doesn't seem so profound now, but at the time it, he said to me, the best thing, whatever his wife was, ever did to me was to let me lie down in the ditch and refuse to let me come back into the house. And she said, nobody should let an alcoholic live with them. And it's because they do, they actually encourage the alcoholism. And that's why people encourage people's addictions, alcoholism, whatever it is, because they look after them. They love them. They don't say, this is completely unacceptable. I love you, but I do not love you if you drink. And if you continue to drink, I will have nothing to do with you. People have to be, and when they come here, they, they metaphorically are in the ditch. They're at a moment when they say, I actually cannot, do not wish to continue living this way. And the moment someone decides that, then... Sky's the limit. And it's, again, it's just a choice. Some people choose to heal massively, really go on working at it. Some people just choose to just heal enough so the major triggers are gone and life's bearable. It's all just a personal, personal choice. So the Heal for Life Foundation, um, you run programs here to help mm. people with trauma. Mm. Is it an ongoing thing? Is it something to people, you have, you have a lot of people that come back? It's, it's, it, healing is an ongoing thing. I mean, some people have had just one-off trauma, something horrific that happened in their lives, and when they heal from that, it kind of the whole brain clears and they're fine, which happens sometimes with kids. Um, for a lot of adults, they've had one trauma, but then they've had built on that more other traumas. We were talking about someone earlier and how this person had obviously had a very traumatic childhood, but then since then in her adult life, her behaviours were a subsequent... She had ongoing traumas because of her lack of self-worth, self-belief, and that's what happened. So a lot of people have um, dysfunctional parents and then that say they're sexually abused outside the family and then, as, then they're 
bullied at school and so on and so on. So there, there are layers just because once you're off track, mm. in trying to cope with being off track, you get more and more off track. Yeah, it's incredible. And it gets to a point where, where life, I know we were talking earlier on as well about COVID, saying that um, before COVID everything was so busy and so full on and so stressful and um, I actually went home to Amanda and said, something has to give, you know, something has to stop. Everything was just so full on, travelling all the time and people and phone calls and computers and 24-7. And, um, and COVID really did level the play field. Mm. Um, it made people understand what's important. It made people talk. And that's where this came from, this podcast, because, um, you know, sitting around and talking to people is just so important. I, um, I'm really enjoying giving people time, mm. which I didn't have time to do before. And, um, and hopefully, um, yeah, other people can understand and learn something from all of this as well. Mm. Without using medication, how, how long, I mean, it's going to be different for everybody, but how long does it take for somebody to acknowledge or to understand? You said it can be very quick. I think, I think for everybody, how long is the journey of healing? A lifetime? I mean, it's just it's, it's as long as you want it to be. And it's, it's, it's not that you stop taking medicine, medication and start healing, you start healing and then you slowly lower your medication. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, they kind of pass each other. Um, and it, however much time people give to healing is how quick it takes. The more hours, of, it's like if you've got cancer, if you, if, you've got a, if you become a, you can't use your legs. If you exercise every single day to get your legs back, you get your legs back quicker. It's exactly the same with the brain. If you really work on your healing 12 hours a day, well, then you heal more quickly. It's, it's, it's totally self-determined. Totally self-determined. So it's like a muscle. The, the brain's like a muscle it, that you've got to... It, 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 it's, 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 you're changing the neurons. You're deliberately getting your left brain and your right brain to change. You're getting more brain integration because people who've suffered from trauma have a smaller bridge between the two parts of their brain. So a lot of healing is getting their right and left brain to work together because people who've suffered from trauma are either in their left brain, working busy, 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 busy working, or in their right brain, creative, thinking, emotional, and they can separate the two but mm. they can't find their thinking while being creative and and healing from trauma is having a glorious integration which is what we were created to have and you say that when you started the foundation that you had um, a lot of people that were against oh, no, your direction oh, oh I, I, there still are lots of people because there are lots of people who have self-interested in us in people not healing from trauma but that's just that just goes with the territory uh, i mean early on the, there was a lot of opposition from feminists of, of us having men there that's all but now that's all gone now i mean uh, gender difference has got worked both ways absolutely yeah you know, it, it's worked that pe- people accept that men have emotions that men have trauma that men uh, just as much as women do i mean i think it's getting a more equal Equality of gender, which is a wonderful thing, absolutely. And the Heal for Life Foundation isn't just here; it's not in um, whereabouts are you? Because I know you're around the world as well. Well, we're in the England and the Philippines, and I go um, like I'm going shortly off to Italy to train therapists in Italy. So it's we're kind of everywhere, and I'm sort of everywhere doing like working with them in Britain with in their big high security prison with the the worst offenders. You know, it, it, it everybody's. Anybody who's been a nightmare to society has suffered from childhood trauma. There isn't an exception. Like, you know, in the high security um, Whitemore in Britain, I mean, the, the, the people they were they put them all together. These high risk, never to be released guys. So there's rapists, murderers, um, terrorists all together. 
But every single one of them, when I started saying, all of you will have suffered from trauma, and then they started revealing their trauma. It was absolutely horrific. And only one of them wouldn't own what had happened to him, and he'd been sexually abused by a man who was driving a truck, which was a lolly truck. So he said, it was my fault I should never have got into the truck with a lolly driver. And he so wouldn't accept me saying, no, it was not your fault. How old were you? doesn't matter. Let's say he was eight. I was eight. It's nobody's fault. It's mm. no child's fault. But he actually left. He's the only person who didn't last the day because he, he could not accept it was not his fault. His, his way of surviving in life has been, it was my fault I got into the truck driver. My fault. So all his violence, all his anger had been worked out on other people. But it, all the others could suddenly hit that, go, oh my goodness, is it, my, is it because of that's what happened to me and that's why I'm the way I am. And that makes people feel so much different. It's, otherwise, you're not a bad person. You're a person who bad things happen to. And so you did bad things, but it doesn't mean you're a bad person. You can go back to the golden child who was created. It's your choice. But, you know, if you're in prison, it's hard work, but you, know, but you can do it. Everybody can once they decide it's possible. And that poor man going through life holding on to the blame. Well, it yeah, must be. And, w- and wouldn't let it go. So he'll stay in that prison forevermore because the whole point of the, why the government started this program because they realised the people who were never to be released, you know, never got accepted for parole were the guys who were being very um, violent in prison and that it was costing them a fortune. It would probably be cheaper to have therapists in and heal them and get them out. Once <laughs> so, again, so it all comes down to money. It all comes down to money. It was, it was, that's the only reason why this huge uh, program started in Britain, which is fantastic. But the guys, again, have to want to heal and and then they go through this program. So is that happening here in any jails? So nothing's happening here? No, not that I'm aware of, but um, no, that's why I go to England. (laughs) It was, well, listening to the events that happened this week, another shooting in in America, and um, to hear that the boy who did it, 18 years old, his yeah. baby. He killed he, um, his grandmother first. Killed what his grandmother. Think, what do you think happened in that family? And, and he was bullied at school. Of course. But this, it'll be core stuff because he killed his grandmother first. Yeah. No, it's just... It's just it, it, it's crazy. Terrible. Absolutely. I don't know... Yeah, I don't, I don't know whether any of that sort of... It, it seems to be... And I heard um, the, the president talking about how it only happens in America, these shootings in the schools. Seems well, to only happen there. Well, because only in America can 18-year-olds get semi-automatic rifles, for goodness right. sake. Australia, an 18-year-old, if he wants to go and kill everyone at school, can only get a, an air gun. Mm. <laughs> Can't kill many people with an air gun. An AK-47 kills an awful lot of people awful quickly. Absolutely. Do, um, does politics play a game in um, or have a hand in anything to do with dealing with trauma? Well, except that none of them in any way pay any, you know, there's no funding for healing people from trauma. We could be being a profitable charity if this was a drug rehab centre or alcohol rehab centre or eating disorder clinic or any of the things they provide funding for. Now they're providing funding for domestic violence, but trauma per se, just childhood trauma, which is the core issue across all of those, has still never been receiving any funding. It, it just blows me away to think that it, it, it obviously you've got results, um, mm. you've got a, an amazing track record and it's not even no, paid any attention to. No, it's, but I've reached the age where I just think, don't worry about it, Liz, I'm bored of going to Canberra, just get on with what you're doing and maybe it'll be in another generation and that's okay. Write books, just do what you're doing and, um, and that's, you know, 
that's the thing to do rather than knocking on doors trying to get extra funding and things, which is just um, debilitating. So absolutely, I'm happier, as I say, writing books and training people. Well, you're certainly reaching people. I've followed um, your books and, and um, yeah, hopefully we can get the message out uh, as much as possible. I think that's all we can all do is just keep on, keep on saying it to people and then people hear it and then people who thought, oh, I'm just stuck with the way I am, oh, you know, I can never have a decent relationship. Yes, you can have a decent relationship, but you've got to work out what it is that made you believe that you weren't, you couldn't trust people or whatever. And that will always go back to childhood. Everybody can change. There's so much when you start to talk about it and I look at some horrible relationships that I've seen around me, um, it all makes sense. It really does because there's things in the past that you can see. You can see from the outside, let alone what's going on on the inside. Yeah, Yeah, I know. It's nutty. It really is. So what's next for Heal for Life Foundation? Uh, I think we just keep on doing what we're doing and taking opportunities as they arise and just making sure we stay... Um, up to with, up to the latest methods and learning and grow, learning how to help more people and and yeah just keep on keep on keep on doing and for me it's it's writing you know I write a book a year now because that's me putting down what I've learned in twenty five years so that other people can benefit hopefully benefit from it. How do you reach the people you you need to reach? Uh, we don't really. We just they come to you. Yes, we 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 don't have any money, so we don't advertise, we don't promote. We just people just find us from the Facebook page or other. Word of mouth is the major reason people come here. They come here because somebody else has been here and completely transformed. So they go, I'll have what you're having. We don't do like some of the sort of brain ones where you know at the end of the week they say, right now bring another friend along or any of mm. that stuff. That's it's just kind of I'm not really interested in that hard sell stuff. So we don't. Perhaps to our detriment, do any sort of marketing in that way because it's just. Um, I think healing has to be a choice. Absolutely, that's it's 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 a wonderful philosophy to have, which is very unlike uh, a lot of the stuff out there that you mm. you talk about mm. that get funding. Mm. So um mm. yeah, that's that's heartbreaking to be honest with you. What was the first book that you wrote? Uh, well, the first book I wrote was actually uh, in 1997 uh, because there was a lot of media coverage of, of my story and so there was a bidding war, so I got a lot of money which funded our organisation for a whole year. Um, and so the first book was actually my autobiography, which is now nonsense because at that time I hadn't remembered most of my abuse. Um, so it's quite funny to read now. Uh, and then I wrote a book called Breaking the Silence, which is I realised in Australia we didn't have a, any books by Australians for Australians. And I wanted a book for survivors which was written by Australians, not by American and not by English. Um, so that's a compendium of all different survivors saying what, in various areas the impact. Um, and that I re-edited that two years ago. Then um, three years ago, I wrote a book uh, called Heal for Life and that's just telling people how they can heal from trauma. It's kind of, if you want to heal from trauma, here's all the... Here's all the information. Here's how the brain works. Here's what you have to do. Here's, you know, here's the pathway. Uh, and then uh, last year we wrote a book encouraged by a wonderful our First Nations facilitator, um, and that's a book called Encouragement to Heal. And that's uh, where 40 people have spoken about what led them to decide to heal. I was an alcoholic. Uh, my life was falling apart. I couldn't hold it, whatever. So they, they give just very briefly, not what happened to them in childhood, that's not relevant it's what made me go I've got to heal 
And then the main part of the book is what did I find most helpful on my healing journey? What, which, what, what are, you know, hints for other people? And then the third part is what have you achieved because of healing? And those are really profoundly wonderful because they're people who really do, have done amazing things as a result of healing. Um, so that's called encouragement to heal. And that's just to say to people, to, just to encourage people to heal, to say you can do it. And then at the moment I'm just finishing a book um, on DID, which is Dissociative Identity Disorder, which is people who have more than one inner self. And a lot of people have more than one inner self. So it, And they find it very hard to get a therapist. So at the moment... I'm really expanding the whole bit for therapists because uh, therapists and people are quite scared of people who've got lots of different inner selves. So is that a, a protective mechanism, the inner yes. self? Yeah, the, it's because um, as the trauma is so horrific, then that part of the brain just splits off and locks away that bit of trauma and then another part of the brain takes the next trauma and another part of the brain... So it, it's like the right brain as it was really segments. So that, uh, that you, you hear a bit about it in different faces of Eve, um, you know... Multi-personality disorder it used to be where people can completely switch their eye colour changes. All sorts of things happen for, um, and people sort of look at it as a sort of bizarre and interesting. But actually, um, uh, you know, and you're a bit crazy, and they're not people. Like, they're not crazy. It's just a brilliant way they're brain coped i've heard about eye color changing and stuff like that so that that really does oh, happen. yes it's amazing to look at oh absolutely and blind people can see when they're in different parts people don't have glasses on or they wear glasses when they're in some parts and they can see totally clearly in other parts oh it's it's absolute the whole neural connections between different parts of their brain are different for different parts depending on how they needed to protect themselves wow yeah i i actually heard about i was watching a documentary on um ted bundy and people were saying that his eyes would change colour um, when he was in a manic state. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, I didn't think that that could oh, yeah, actually absolutely. happen. Oh, I've seen it lots of times. I mean, it's not, it's not like, oh, how amazing. <laughs> no, 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 I imagine it's, it's not. It's just but, but fascinating. But it's extraordinary and it's fascinating. Yeah. It just goes to show how incredible the body is. Oh, how incredible the brain is. Oh, our brains are phenomenal, phenomenal. And the connection between our emotions and our physical well-being so many people who have migraines, why do they have migraines? When they're triggered, the way that they don't go fight or flight, they go into a headache. Mm. And a headache withdraws you from the world um, and, and so on. So there's a, the, the link between... We've only beginning to un, uncover the whole thing about the brain. I mean, I think the most exciting thing is how they're going to really soon get um, heal paraplegics, you know, by utilising neurons. They will be doing amazing work. Autistic... Uh, kids will be able to be healed. Autism, all those things, to whatever extent they want to, um, will will be will be transformed. I um I always think of my uncle Ken. He's passed away now. Um, he died about ten years ago, I think it was, and he was eighty five, eighty six. And he used to say that there's nothing, uh, nobody's going to see the change in the world that I have in my yeah, lifetime. Yeah. So that, that 85 years, he said, um, he said, we used to have horse and carts, yeah. now watching planes take off. Uh -huh. He said, it doesn't matter, your children and your children's children aren't going to see that change in technology. But they're going to see different things. We're going to see, see some amazing things. Oh, absolutely. We, Technologically and the way the brain will, and the body, the understanding about illness, all of that will be transformed in the next 50 years. I... I I'm fascinated by um, some of the stories I hear of, of people who... There's people that I've written off in life because I thought they're never going to get over things and they have pulled through and they're shining now. And, um, and it's, it just goes to show 
it's a choice thing. It really is, like you said, it's a, it's a personal choice. And that's really the difference between the people that are can do and can't do. That's what, when COVID hit me, I had a choice to do things. I wanted to podcast, I wanted to paint, I wanted to do things and I got off my bum and did it. And I never, ever would have done that before. Exactly. Never would have had the opportunity. And it's the same with, with I suppose, with healing trauma. Absolutely. Learning that, that it is there, it is possible to fix. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I think, um, it, it, like we keep saying in this talk, everything is a choice, but life is a complete choice. In, if any, anyone who is miserable and, and the person we're talking about, it's a choice. And people don't think it's a choice. They say, oh, no, they can't help themselves. It's nonsense. By doing that, you're disempowering the person by thinking they can't change. You're disempowering them. People think, oh, no, 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 they're not. No, no, I've just got to look after them. No, sorry, no, you have to empower them. Say, so, you know, you can change. You can be different if you want to. You don't have to be like this. Um, but, but everyone just accepts the condition people are in rather than saying, do something about it. Yeah, and so many people ignore it and just let people go. And yeah. it's, um, how do you deal with something if somebody's on, uh, or, or there's so many new drugs out there mm. these days. It's terrifying having teenagers um, go through life these days. But you don't have to worry because, you see, that's, that's another thing. The only teenagers who are addicted to drugs are those who've suffered from trauma. So no ordinary teenager is going to get addicted to drugs. They'll trial them. Yeah, they'll, you know, and, and sadly, if they've got one that's been badly made... Uh, you know, just experimenting at a music festival could kill you, even if you... So that, that bit is a danger. But they're not going to become an addict. The, uh, the, the statistics, I mean, this, this is government research, 92% of heroin addicts, 94% of amphetamine users admitted to having suffered from childhood trauma. So that's, that's 5,000 only, but kids at the age of 24. And those are the ones who remembered, well, if I'd been asked at 24, I'd have said I didn't suffer from any sort of childhood abuse. So um, the researcher and I have presented papers at different conferences, and she always says she knows it's like really virtually 100%. And I know it is, because every time a mother rings me about, you know, there's kids on drugs and what can they do? And I say, oh, what, what happened to your kid? And they say, oh, nothing, nothing. No, I've been, no, no. No, I mean, the, the, their dad did leave when they were two and uh, and I was in hospital at the time, so they had to go and, you know, and, and there's always something comes up. I said, well, that's the trauma, <laughs> mm. you know. And and um, if people, particularly what's called avoidant and attachment style, people turn to alcohol. It's, it's the way you avoid your feelings. You turn to drugs. It's people screaming out, um, eating disorders, um, self-harm. All of that is people... Teenagers screaming out for someone to hear their pain, um, and they don't. So it's, it's punishment. It, it's punishment it, and medicating. Yeah, it, it, so people try to then manage it. So if you've got an eating disorder, they try to do exactly the opposite from what you need because you have an eating disorder because that's one thing you can control. And so what you do, you go into hospital where they try to control you again. So you're, it's going against... Um, what needs to happen. But that's out of fear because they can't let the kid die, so they force-feed them. But force-feeding them is doing <laughs> the opposite. They're not actually saying, okay, what happened in relation to eating? What is it that makes you not want to eat? What's happened in your life? Yeah, just anything to avoid acknowledging the truth because the truth is more scary uh, than living in a lie. I never believed in progress memory. I never believed in remembering things that, that happened earlier on until I um, had a session of EMDR. Right, yeah. And uh, so many things came out that I'd completely forgotten and the vivid memories mm. of things, um, yeah, it, it, it's fascinating. So that's, that connects to your right brain through 
effects of desensitisation through rapid eye movement. It just flowed out. Like a whole lot of things came out that I totally forgot. There's nothing, anything traumatic, for instance, anything upsetting right the way through in the womb onwards is in your right, is in the amygdala to protect you. It's the way the species saves itself. Mice learn that cats are dangerous. We learn, unfortunately, that, you know, never talk to... No, you know. If you're a woman, you could learn men are dangerous, so then you never, you know, you become lesbian, you never have a relationship with a man. I mean, we, we all, because in that right brain, it's always ticking us, don't, don't, it's dangerous, not safe. And let me quickly add, I'm not saying that all lesbians are... Oh, no. Trauma. <laughs> let me just of course, add, of I'm course. not in any way saying that, but there are certainly people who, who change the same-sex relationships because of, of sexual abuse. We spoke about one earlier on. Um, before the yeah. podcast, yeah. Um, there was a, a situation that, that came up ab- about the same thing. Yeah, um, yeah it, and people deal with trauma in different ways and I suppose they can heal in different ways as well. Uh, no, I don't agree with that. No? I, I think you only ever release, heal from trauma by releasing the fear. I think there's really interesting stuff happening with the psychedelic drugs at the moment, which certainly has doing amazing stuff, but it's still only temporary and it's not a permanent fix. Um, they may find something, but at the moment... EMDR, what does it do? It releases the fear. If you don't, really, and it's not, it's only effective with maybe half quarter of people. An awful lot of survivors loathe EMDR. It obviously worked for you, which is fantastic. If it works, it's brilliant. But it's a way of remembering what happened, and usually it's only really healing if you actually release the fear. You can't do EMDR unless you're releasing the fear with it. So. Have you had any um, people come to you where they can't release the fear, no. or they don't know how to release the fear? No, because that's our job. No, I mean, that's, you, you have to provide a safe environment so people feel it's safe enough to let it go. Mm-hmm. But you've got, you've got to feel safe. So here is a, the first priority is people have to feel safe. They have to feel absolutely, it doesn't matter what happens, they, they're being held by the place, it's so quiet and peaceful, by the people, by the fact that everyone here is a survivor of child abuse and by the other people in the group who are holding a very safe space. That's how you heal. Well, it's certainly a wonderful place. I, on the on the way in, I saw some kangaroos and ducks flying over, mm-hmm. and oh, the the greenery here is amazing. Yeah, it so is. certainly is a safe place. Well, uh, Liz Mulliner, I'm so so happy to see you and to give you a big hug today. <laughs> um, I want to thank you for being a mentor to me in my early years, and um, and I know you've asked me about trauma in in my acting career. I mm-hmm. honestly had none in my acting That's career. Wonderful. I was so lucky to have people like you around me. Um, and, and a very supportive family as well. Mm, mm. I'm so proud of you and the, the helping I that you're doing you. with people and um, I look forward to um, watching your foundation grow. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you, Clayton. Thank you. For more information on Liz Mulliner's work, visit healforlife.com.au. Yarn About You is a Centre Stage Creative production. Follow us on Facebook by searching Yarn About You or visit yarnaboutyou.com.au for more information about the podcast and our guests.